two through four-year-olds will be dismissed at this time to Toddler Nursery and Children's Church. Those of you who will remain in the sanctuary, if you would please turn to Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4, we'll be looking at Jesus, our sin offering. Leviticus chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and commits any of them, and if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of the fragrant incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. And all the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he shall remove from it all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails, all the fat which is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys, just as it is removed from the ox of the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest is to offer them up in smoke on the altar of the burnt offering. But the hide of the bull and all of its flesh, with its head and its legs and its entrails and its refuse, that is, all the rest of the bull, he is to bring out to a clean place outside of the camp where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel commits error and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly and they commit any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, they shall become guilty. And when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for an offering of, of sin and bring it before the tent of meeting. Then the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be slain before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to bring some of the blood of the bull to the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horn of the altar, which is before the Lord in the tent of the meeting, and all the blood he shall pour out the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he shall remove from it all of its fat and offer it up in smoke on the altar. And he shall also do with with this bull just as he did with the bull of the sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them and they will be forgiven. And then he is to bring out the bull to the place outside of the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It is a sin offering for the assembly. And when a leader sins and unintentionally does any one of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, He uh, shall become guilty, and if his sin which he has committed is uh, made known to him, he shall bring out for his offering a goat, a male without defect, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the uh, male goat and slay it in the place where they slay the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering, and the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of the burnt offering. And all of its fat he shall offer up in smoke on the altar, as in the case of the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offering. Thus the priest shall make an atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he shall be forgiven. Now, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and becomes guilty, 
If his, sin, if his sin which he has committed is made known to him, then he shall bring for an offering a goat, a female without defect, for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering. And all the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. And then he shall remove all of its fat, just as the fat was removed from the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar. It's a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him and he will be forgiven. But if he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring it a female without defect. And he shall lay his hands on the head of the sin offering and slay it for a sin offering in the place where they will slay the burnt offering. And the priest is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and all the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. And then he shall remove all of its fat, just as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar, the offerings by fire to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, which he has committed, and he will be forgiven. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for the compassion and kindness that you have toward us to give us your word, the gracious gift that it is. Father, may our minds and our hearts be open to your truth today. May the Lord Jesus Christ be made known to us through this text. And may our lives be conformed to his image. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we have the opportunity to see Jesus as our sin offering. Now, this is by far the longest chapter that we have walked through in Leviticus to this point. And there's a great deal of repetition, but there's also a great deal of distinction. And so what I want to do, like we've done with all of the other sacrifices and all of the other offerings, is kind of walk through the practice of it so that we can kind of hone in in our minds what it is that's going on. And so these animals are being brought to sacrifice in a similar pattern to the burnt offering that we've seen before and the peace offering that we've seen before. And so the things that are the same, there is a laying of the hands on the head of the sacrifice at the, at the entryway to the tent of meeting. And so there's an ownership of the reality of the sacrifice that's about to be made. The one who is responsible is the one bringing the, uh, the animal for sacrifice and they lay their hands on it. In the case of a congregation, it is the leaders of, of the assembly who all come and lay their hands on that sacrifice. It, it, the animal is slain there at the doorway, at the entrance to the, uh, the, the tabernacle, and the priest gathers the blood. Now, what you would have noticed is that there are some differences from those other sacrifices based on who the sacrifice is for. And so we will look at, uh, in a second at, at the various people who are coming for these sacrifices. But it's done in one way for the priest. It's done in a slightly different way if it's the sin of the whole congregation. It's done yet again in a slightly different way if it's someone who's a leader from among the community. And then it's done in a slightly different way if it's from among, as the translation here in NASB has, the common people. Um, I, I want to give you a better translation if you're one who's comfortable writing notes in the margins of your Bible. The better way to translate that is people of the land. That's what that means. And when you're comparing them to the priests, that makes sense. Because remember, the priests don't have an allotment of land to work. They have enough space 
to live, but they don't have enough space to raise animals and to raise crops and that sort of thing. The priests are not people of the land. They're people of the tabernacle. Everyone else are people of the land. They work the land, they raise animals, they raise crops, and they bring some of those things to the tabernacle for these various offerings and sacrifices. And so um, the language of common people, especially in our culture, puts a little bad taste in the mouth, you know? That's not what was going on. It wasn't kind of a us and them. It wasn't, hey, the priests are great and y'all, the rest of you, you know, are, you know, common people. That's not really what was going on. It's, hey, we're people who work the tabernacle, You are people who work the land. And that's actually the literal translation of that phrase, common people, people of the land. And so those who are not priests. And so they were making a distinction between those two groups of people. And if you'll note in just a a few differences. So when the when the when the priest is making the sacrifice for himself or for the overall community, there's a sprinkling of blood seven times towards the veil. Um, uh, the, the picture and the structure is helpful to see, but there was a, a, a place that offerings could be made that were not inside the place that the priest would go where, the, where the, the, the primary altar of sacrifice was made. And so the priest is going into the veil to make the offering for himself or for the congregation. He's staying outside of the veil to make the offering for the leader and for the people of the land. And there's an interaction with these two altars that are different. Sometimes there's a pouring of the blood on the horns. Sometimes there's a sprinkling of the blood on the horns, depending on which which altar and which person. Uh, but what's unique, what's very different, it's going to be very important for us in a moment, is that when the priest gathers the blood for all of these sacrifices, for each one of these sacrifices is made, the blood is not thrown on the altar as it was previously. This is the first sacrifice that explicitly states that it's being done for the forgiveness of sins. It is that's like the chief difference in this one and all the other ones we've seen. Now, there's an implication in the other ones that one of the reasons why you need to be there and do what you're doing is that there's a distance between you and God because there is a brokenness. There's an overall sinfulness, but it's not for specific actions of sin until now. And when you have the need for forgiveness of sin that you have committed, they do something very different with the blood. They don't throw it onto the side of the altar and let it run down into the ground. They intentionally gather it in bowls and pour it in a specific place. It's not thrown on the altar. Some of it is rubbed on parts of the altar. Some of it is sprinkled toward the altar, depending on who the sacrifice is for. But the rest of the blood is poured out in a very specific location in one spot. And that's going to be very important for us to see the symbolism of that later as it's fulfilled in the New Testament. But I want you to keep that in mind. Now, some theological issues with this sin offering. First... When the priest offers a sacrifice for his own sin or for the sin of the congregation, there is a sprinkling of the blood seven times towards the veil. When the priest is entering into the veil to make an offering on behalf of someone else or for himself, he must make sure that if he is the one responsible for the sin, his sin is covered before he goes into the presence of God. 
inside of the veil is what's considered the presence of God. That's where that altar is. And so if the priest knowingly has come to realize, remember, and we'll get to this in a moment, these are unintentional sins. They didn't, they didn't realize they were sinning. It was pointed out to them after the fact that they had sinned. They've come to the realization through that pointing out, oh, I, I recognize now that I've done something wrong, something sinful, and I need to have that atoned for. And so if the priest realizes, oh, I'm the one who sinned, I should not go into that space. I should not go into what we consider to be the presence of the Lord because I'm the one who's committed the sin. And so the animal is sacrificed. The priest then takes some of that blood. And as he you can almost envision it in this way, he's walking toward the veil with the blood and the other things that he's going to carry in there. And he's sprinkling blood toward the veil on his behalf so he can go in. That's what's happening. It's the same thing that happens if it's a sin of the entire community. And friends, hear me this morning. Our hyper individualism in the United States, it is really difficult for us to embrace the concept of community sin. All those guys over there were doing that, but I didn't have anything to do with it. Did you call them out on it? Did you try to make whatever the sinful action was stop? Did you try to support those who were wounded by the sinful action after the fact? We commit community-wise sins of omission far more than we do sins of commission. By turning our blind eye to the wickedness around us that we know shouldn't be there, We allow sin to grow. And so there's very much a sense in which a community as a whole can sin. Not to put too fine a point on it, but to give you a modern church example. I was having a conversation many years ago with an acquaintance of mine who embraced a homosexual lifestyle. And we were talking about the place of the church and Christ and the the rightness or wrongness of the lifestyle and all those sorts of things. And I remember in the middle of the conversation, I've known this person for a very long time. And I remember in the midst of it, he held his hand up and he said, Philip, listen. He said, I know you personally, and I know that everything you're saying is coming from a certain kind of place. Because I know I've watched, I've seen you. I knew what you were like before Jesus was in your life. I've seen what you're like since Jesus has been in your life. And I feel like you've probably done the stuff the right way that a Christian should probably do it. And I was appreciative that he'd seen that in my life. He said, but here's the problem. The church as a whole, Christians as a whole, have had such a train wreck in their understanding of family and marriage and sexuality, that there's no room for the Western American church to dare wag their finger at anybody like me giving all the stuff that they've let slide over all the years. And he went on to list a host of things that I couldn't argue against. The rates of of out-of-wedlock sexuality, out-of-wedlock pregnancy, the heightened divorce rates when it was not the appropriate biblical reasons for divorce to take place. And on and on and on the list could go. The heightened number of people in Christian communities that abuse children in inappropriate ways, etc., etc., etc. 
And of course, any of us could say, well, that, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. But how many of us were silent? How many of us said, well, you know, it's not really my place. It's not my business. That's, that's them. That's not me. I mean, I don't think that's okay, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to the street corner and hold up my sign about the guy who's gay, but I'm not going to go have a conversation with my friend who's cheating on his wife because it's really not my business. There are sins of the community that must be atoned for. And so whenever that happened, the priest had to throw that same sprinkled blood toward the veil because he was part of the community. If I'm the one who did the sin as a priest, I can't go in there. And if I'm part of the community sin, I can't go in there either because this is my community. I've got to own this. And as an old friend of mine used to say, if you can't say amen, say ouch. And so there's this sprinkling of the blood for the priest and for the congregation. Now, for the other two, for the leaders and for the people of the land, the common people, the sacrifice on the altar happened outside of the veil. There was an altar there rather than going into the veil as they did for the priest and for the whole community. And it's just a unique demonstration of how God views certain aspects of sin. Now, I want to talk for a second about this language that happens at the very beginning of Leviticus 4, verse 2, where it talks about someone who sins unintentionally, the unintentional sin. It's translated in most of our Bibles as a descriptive word, adjective or an adverb, rather than what it actually is in the Hebrew text, it's a noun. In the Hebrew text, the word itself means inadvertent sin, mistake, and error committed without knowledge. You could translate it way more literally if a person sins an inadvertent sin. That's how you really could say it. Friends, there are sins that we commit that we don't know and realize are sinful. I don't know the last time you read through the entire law of the Old Testament, 613 individual laws in the first five books of the Old Testament. When I was in Israel several years ago to to help Orthodox Jews not violate the Sabbath at 6 p.m. on Saturday, excuse me, on Friday into Saturday, on the actual Sabbath day. They would have automatic elevators. That would just stop on every floor, door open, door closed. You didn't have to push any buttons so that someone wouldn't inadvertently work on the Sabbath. Because I didn't want to mess up and accidentally do something I wasn't supposed to do and unintentionally break one of God's laws. That's a lot of stuff to remember. I mean, I've been in pastoral ministry since forever and have multiple degrees from seminary. And sometimes I forget the order of the Ten Commandments. I forget the 10. There's another 603 that if I were part of the Jewish community, I might not remember. <laughs> oh, wait, was I, how was I supposed to cut the animal? Where was I supposed to put the fat lobe? And which altar was that supposed to be? Like, I mean, I'm telling you, there's a lot going on here. Now, is this one of those cases where I can help get this animal out of the predicaments in? Or is this one of those where I'm supposed to leave it? Are we supposed to stone this guy? Are we supposed to just find him? Like Somebody help me out. I'm not real sure what's going on. There's a lot for them to remember. And so, 
Perhaps you sin unintentionally. You don't realize that you're sinning. Friends, that's true even for us who are not under this law. There's a law of Christ that calls for us to love our neighbor. There's a law of Christ that calls for us to to fulfill the law of God by yielding the fruit of the Spirit with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And that's all one fruit that is born out of the life of walking in the Spirit that against these things there is no law because that is the fulfillment of the whole law of God when our lives are ordered that way. And how many times on how many days and how many moments of those days do I walk through my day not reflecting that fruit, not reflecting love, not reflecting joy, not reflecting peace, and on and on and on. And by not doing so, I'm grieving the Holy Spirit. So even in our life in Christ, we can understand the concept of unintentional sin. We get it. And so it's remarkably compassionate of God that he made a provision to cover sins that we might not even be aware of. And isn't that the kind of crux in life? It's really easy to be convicted of and convinced of obvious sin in our lives. Here's Miss Paulette's bag. It's not my bag. I take Miss Paulette's bag. That's sin I'm stealing. It's pretty simple. What's not so simple is you see that person coming. You know who that person is. I'll have to tell you. That person. Oh, that per- that person. The mere fact that you kind of tilted your head down and curled your lips. and Oh, that person already shows. That there might be some uh, harder to diagnose sin going on on the inside. That we could yeah, but to death. Oh, yeah, but you don't know what they did. Yeah, but you don't know what they said. Yeah, but you don't know how they acted toward me. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but no, yeah, but. Love your neighbor, love your enemy. A little harder to diagnose. Not as obvious to be seen. And sometimes it's just a spirit and an attitude that's within. Very unintentional. I didn't map out to feel this way. I didn't map out to have this attitude. I didn't map out not to have love, not to have joy, not to have peace, not to have patience, not to have kindness, not to have goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I didn't map out to be this way. But here I am. I find myself in this spirit and in this attitude and is contrary to the things of Christ. Praise be to God. He provides a way for our unintentional sinning to be covered. It's wonderful. So let's take a quick look then at Jesus as the sin offering. Let's see him in this offering. As I mentioned before, this is the first sacrifice in the book of Leviticus that explicitly states that it is done for the forgiveness of sins. If you cannot see Jesus in the declaration that his sacrifice is for the forgiveness of sins, then you have not read the New Testament. Like that's the most obvious one that's there. Because it explicitly says in the New Testament that his sacrifice is a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And so there's a one-to-one parallel with this expression of their atonement being done so that their sins can be forgiven. As exactly what Jesus has done for us in his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. 
And so we don't even have to reach for that one. That one's just plainly stated and obvious for us. But another thing that I want you to note, and this is very important and it's subtle. And if we had, you know, three or four more sermons to deal with this one issue, it might would be even more helpful. But instead we have, you know, part three, uh, point B to try to express all of this. So we'll try to squeeze it all in. But one of the great arguments against the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ is how unfair that is. It's not fair that the only way a person can have a right standing before God and be in right fellowship with him and have eternal life with him and have eternal dwelling with him after this life ends is to have entered through the gate of Jesus Christ. That's just not fair. What about the people who didn't know anything about Jesus? What about the people who didn't know anything about God's standard? What about the people who didn't know anything about how their life was in rebellion against God? What about the people who had no clue that they were sinners? Friends, we just spent a whole chapter talking about unintentional sin. And you know what? They were guilty whether they knew it or not. There are no excuses when it comes to sin and standing rightly before God. Not knowing is not an acceptable argument for innocence. And friends, we actually recognize that in essentially all the laws of every country on the earth. There's a story a bunch of years ago about some teenagers that had taken a trip to a certain section of Southeast Asia with a class. They were, I believe, either high, late high school age or early college age. And they were just kind of doing some of the stuff that they, they were doing. And one of the guys, they had been doing something and he got something in his throat and he spit something out of his mouth onto the ground. Not an uncommon thing for somebody to do unless you're in that country which was very much against the law and taken very seriously. And it happened that someone who was part of their law system saw him do it. Penalty? To be caned on the spot. That dude got beat with a stick. I didn't know. I didn't know. It didn't matter. You know what he knew when he got home? He had some welts on his back. He knew right quick. Guess what? He was still guilty, whether he knew it or not. We have rules like that in America. You can't stand before the judge normally and say, I had no idea. Now, sometimes they'll let you slide depending on the crime. But let's just say, hypothetically, that you come from a culture that does still exist in the world where it's normative for your aged people to be eaten in cannibalism. And then you move to the U.S. and you come and say, oh, well, here's a very old person who's dying. I'm going to eat them. And then you go stand before the judge. I had no idea you didn't do that here. Guess what? You're still going to jail. Because here we don't eat people. We just don't do that. I don't care what they do where you're from. You're not there anymore. And one day people are going to stand before God and say, I had no idea. And he's going to say, I don't care. You're not knowing is not an argument for innocence. There are unintentional sins that we all commit everywhere all the time. There is, Paul makes this argument, hear me friend, Paul makes this argument in Romans 1. God's divine attributes have been made clear in the things that he has made so that all men everywhere are without excuse. The natural revelation itself 
brings guilt upon the conscience of men everywhere. There are things that we just intuitively know we shouldn't be about. And we all everywhere in every culture on earth have a sense of things not being quite the way that they should be. It's not an excuse. And so when we get to the New Testament and there's this exclusivity of Christ in the gospel for sin. Do you know who never said, oh, that's not fair? The Jewish people. Why? They're like, oh, that sounds like Leviticus 4. Oh, we've had that going for a long time. Even when you mess up and you don't know it, you're still guilty before God. It's everybody else who has a problem with it. Not the folks who've received special revelation from God. So I wanted to touch on that. But now there's two passages in the New Testament that I want us to note about the things that we see here that are unique in Leviticus 4 that really show us an intriguing picture of Jesus and his gospel. So the first one is, remember I said they, they, they gathered the blood of the sacrifice and instead of splattering it on the altar, they took it to a particular place and they poured all of it out in one spot. If you would please flip forward to Revelation chapter 16. I want to look at this one first. Revelation chapter 16. In Revelation chapter 15, there is a call, the chapter right before this one. There is a call from heaven to all the people of the earth to fear the one true God. There's a declaration of their need to turn away from their sinning. Sin maybe they don't even know is sinful. And turn to the God who has made them. And then we get to chapter 16. They don't, by the way. When we get to chapter 16, it says, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Do you know where we have the picture of pouring bowls out as it relates to God's wrath, either being appeased or being fulfilled? We have it in the law. And we have it in Revelation. This language that's used in the very first sacrifice that is for sin and forgiveness, meaning it's appeasing the wrath of God against sin, found here first in Leviticus chapter 4 is a direct parallel to the language that John uses to talk about God's wrath globally against sin that has not been repented of in Revelation chapter 16. It gives a greater fullness to what's going on in Revelation. When you understand it from that context, because he's borrowing the pictures that are found in the Old Testament. So what do we want to see? Pouring out the bowls instead of tossing them on the altar. Either the pouring out of blood is a picture of God's forgiveness. Because a sacrifice has been made that has been accepted. Or the pouring out of the bowls is a picture of God's wrath poured out on those who need to receive his wrath and a reckoning to be had. Friends, these sacrifices that are being made in the book of Leviticus are sacrifices of substitution. 
Very much like Christ's death for us was a sacrifice of substitution. God accepts what has happened at that altar. And that blood that is now poured out is a picture of his wrath going away from the people. It is not the wrath of God's judgment is not falling on the people because he has accepted the sacrifice. And friends, if there is not a sacrifice over you, a substitute to cover you, then the pouring out of the bowl will not be beside the altar. It will be on you. And that's the picture we see in Revelation 16. There's a whole earth filled with people who are not covered by the substitutionary sacrifice. And the bowl must be poured out. And it cannot be poured out on the side of the altar. It must now be poured out on the people themselves. So we see that there's this picture of the fulfilling of God's wrath in these bowls. Now, the one that's beautiful. Let me show you this. The one that's hopeful and encouraging. Turn back a few pages to Hebrews chapter 13. If you notice when we were talking about the sacrifice for the priest and the sacrifice for the congregation, they had a bull that they sacrificed. And there were certain aspects of it that they did there inside of the tabernacle and certain offerings that were made there and pouring out of blood, etc. But then they took a substantial portion of that offering and carried it outside of the camp. Not just outside of the tabernacle, outside of the camp to the place where the ashes were placed. A clean place where what was left over from the work that was done in the altar could be disposed of somewhere else. Because friends, we talked a lot about the disposing of the blood and the blood seeping into the ground. But there's an awful lot of burnt up leftover pieces of things. All these things getting burned up on these altars that has to go somewhere. Can't just leave it in there. It has to go someplace. And they had a designated place for that. And I want you to hear this from Hebrews chapter 13. Beginning in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Not by foods through which those who are so occupied are not benefited. For we have an altar... From which those who serve the tabernacle, notice the language, tabernacle. Those who serve the tabernacle, the sacred tent, not the temple, have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals, this is Leviticus, by the way. The writer of the Hebrews is talking about what's going on in the book of Leviticus right now. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are what? Burned outside of the camp. Remember what it said. It said remove the animal's hide and a few other pieces and carry those parts and burn them outside of the camp. Don't burn them at the altar. They are making, the writer of the Hebrews is making a direct reference to Leviticus chapter 4. And what does he say? What does he say this means? What does Leviticus chapter 4 mean? This carrying of the body of the animal to be burned outside of the camp. Verse 12. Therefore... Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside of the camp, bearing his reproach. 
For we, listen to this, for we do not have a lasting city. When Leviticus 4 happened, what was the capital city of the nation of Israel? There wasn't one. They were wandering in the desert. They had no permanent home. The tabernacle could be broken down and built back up wherever they had to find themselves to be. They were longing and waiting to enter into the promised land. Notice. For we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him then, speaking of Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. How does the writer to Hebrews understand the fulfillment of the sin offering of Leviticus 4, where the animals are carried outside of the camp to have the rest of their body burned? He views that as the body of Jesus Christ, sacrificed outside of the permanent city of Jerusalem, which is not the permanent dwelling place of the people of God. Rather, it is a declaration that even in this world that we still live in now, we are wandering through the wilderness, longing for the heavenly city of Zion. That's what he's saying. And so when we see this sacrifice happening for sin, the very first sacrifice for sin that is offered specifically in the book of Leviticus, they take part of that animal and they carry it away from where everything else was happening. And friends, they may not have realized it at the time, but through the, the revelation of God and the inspiration of the text by way of the Holy Spirit, we now gain a greater understanding that it was a picture of Christ. Sacrificed far off from that spot. So that we would not find great attachments to this world. That we would not long for a kingdom in this world. Because friends, when they cross that river. Just as we close, when they cross that river. And they entered into the land of promise. And they got their land designations. And they started building their homes. And they started establishing their cities. Over time, what did they want? They wanted a king. Why? So we can be like everybody else. All the other nations have a king. And he has a throne and they have a capital city. What was the capital city before they had a king once they got to the land of promise? There wasn't one. Why? Because the whole nation was to reflect the glory of God together, not one man in one place. And what do we often do as Christians? Jesus, you have to bless me right here, right now, in a tangible, physical way that I can see and feel, because I want to be like everybody else. Instead of, God, thank you that this life that I am living, I live under the suffering of Jesus 
because I long for something greater than this. Friends, that's Leviticus 4. They had not yet received their promised blessing of the land that God had given to Abraham. They were trapped between what was going to be theirs one day and the past that they had left behind in Egypt. The longing for the good things of their former life still tempting them. The uncertainty of the glories of the life that had been promised to them not yet fully seen. And friends, that is us in the already not yet as we pursue the things of Jesus Christ. My past life constantly calling out to me, beckoning me to return to it. And the Lord Jesus constantly prompting me by way of the Spirit to keep my face set towards the glorious day of His great resurrection. That's Leviticus chapter 4. Because we're going to make this offering here that declares that I'm right with God. But we're going to carry part of it way out here because, friends, we're not there yet. And the writer to Hebrews made the declaration that all of that is fulfilled in Christ and what he's doing for his people, the church. And, friends, all of that's done for us even when we don't know We're sinning. Because don't forget. This is the sin offering of the unintentional sin. It gets even better when you know that you were sinning. The amount of grace that comes down on us. It just ratchets way up as we keep going through Leviticus. And it's like I knew. Hey, I knew I did that. Just keeps getting better and better. The amount of grace that comes. This is the type of story God tells us even when we don't know we're blowing it. Even when we have no idea what we've done. Because friend, I want to tell you this morning, I know in my life, I've shared a few stories and I try to keep most of them to myself because I don't think that humans who are saved by grace should glory in the past life of their sin. But I know that I've done some really wretched things. Really wretched things. And what's terrifying to me is that there are a host of just as wretched things that I have no idea that I did that were sinful. And God's grace covers those still. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the overwhelming amount of grace that you show us. Thank you that Christ Jesus was carried outside of the camp and let us go and suffer there with him as we long for a city not made with hands. Father, thank you that even when we don't know we are sinning, your grace still abounds to us. For Christ's blood has been poured out beside the altar of his cross for us so that your pouring out of wrath will not fall on us, but rather fell on him. Father, thank you that you forgive us even of our ignorance of our sin and are gracious to us still. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand.